have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9. That gentleman on that video, his name is Kyle Eidelman. He's one of the teaching pastors at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. It's the biggest Christian church in our denomination, about 20,000 people. And years ago, he put out a, a book, an award-winning book called Not a Fan. And it went along with that, that video series there. So, have you ever thought you were going to get something for free and it costed you, cost you dearly? Um, several years ago, we went to Disney World about 10 or 12 straight years when the boys were really young. We would go in early December before the holiday rush. It was really a good time. It was cool in Florida. We liked it. Um, but Price got to be the age where he needed a ticket. And up until that point, we had a friend who, how do I say this, knew Goofy really, 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 really well. Like, knew Goofy, like, really well, and could get three of us in to Disney World for free. When Price was my second child, he became an age where we had to get him a ticket. I'm like, how are we going to get a ticket? So I get on eBay, and I type in free Disney tickets. And bam, this listing comes up. It promises me a four-day ticket to Disney World, which at that time was worth about $200, probably with their exorbitant prices today worth maybe $400. And uh, says, I have to go with my wife, and we have to watch uh, some sort of timeshare presentation. Now, we're staying on site. Some of you are already smiling. You've been down this road before. So um, we're on site at Disney. We don't have a, a car. And so the, the listing says, we'll come pick you up. And so I've got, you know, Ricky is, what, five at that age? Price is three. Some guy named Fred is showing up at the, the All-Star Movies Resort to pick up my, my, my wife and my five-year-old and my three-year-old. They're throwing us into a beat-up BMW. I have no idea who Fred is. I have no idea where we're going. Uh, but we end up at this strange location where they show us vacation homes that we don't have any interest in. And more than that, as a youth minister at the time, I got no way I can afford this. I'm trying to tell them that early in the process that there's no chance. But uh, they had no child care for people who weren't potty trained. So Price, who was three, literally sat on Lynn's lap for the entire presentation. The ad on eBay promised uh, no high-pressured sales, but it was a lie. They absolutely beat the tar out of you. Um, it took longer than they said to. 90 minutes, yeah. I remember their main line, I'm not making this up, they told me how hot my wife was and how she deserved it. And I think my wife is hot, but I'm not sure I want Fred and his timeshare crew telling me how hot my wife is. That didn't go very well. They asked me, they said, how could you not do this for your wife? Like, I'm a, I'm a bad man because I didn't get my hot wife his timeshare presentation. And they sent multiple salesmen at us. I'm a pretty stubborn son of a gun. If I go get a car and I walk into a car dealer and I say, I'm paying $1.99 a month, I'm not going for two more. Mr. Cooper, that's just a, an extra pizza. Well, I like pizza, all right? And I'm not doing it for $2.09. And so they, they just, it was literally like, like WWE tag team wrestling. I swear, they went to the back of the room, they made a tag, and they sent somebody out. And one after another, these guys tried to, to get us to buy this timeshare, and obviously we didn't much. All I can tell you is that those Disney tickets were not free. They cost us more than a half day of our vacation. We dealt with obnoxious salesmen. We were physically exhausted. By the time it was done, uh, we, I wanted to go back. This is the morning. I wanted to go back to the hotel and go to bed. It was worse than chasing my kids around Magic Kingdom for a full day. We were exhausted. Free was a lie. Yes, the ticket was free, 
but the entire experience was extremely costly. And you know, sometimes I think we as the church do the same thing with this Jesus stuff. You know, we talk a lot about free grace. We kind of advertise Jesus like my friend Fred did those, those Disney tickets on eBay. How do we sell Jesus? We talk about grace. Come and, and, and get a little bit of free grace. We talk about how following Jesus will make your life easier. We talk about how followers of Jesus are blessed and how good will come your way. And I understand grace is free. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I understand that what Jesus did for you and I, we can never do for ourselves. I realize that, but that's not the whole story. And the rest of the story is this, that grace is free, but following Jesus is going to cost you everything you've got. I want to read that verse that Kyle Eidelman shared in that video from Luke 9, 23. Then he, Jesus, said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross daily, and follow me. He says, basically, there's two things you need to do to be my follower. Notice that both of them are a lot more than just confessing Jesus with our lips and accepting some free grace. The first thing he says, he says, you need to put aside your selfish ambition. And those words, put aside, literally translate the word deny. About a hundred pounds ago, I promise, every year it's hard to believe, I played college basketball, and I won two national championship games, and I got uh, uh, titles, and I got the ring to prove, I didn't buy it. So I, I'm not, I remember our coach in a big game, I remember him constantly yelling, deny! And if the ball was here, and I was like one pass away, and you basketball guys know what I mean by that. I'm one pass away. I'm denying the entry to my man. I'm doing everything I can to keep the guy up here from passing the ball to my guy over there. And Jesus, in this passage, is pleading with you and I to deny. He's pretty candid about it. He says, for you to be my follower, you're going to have to deny yourself. Uh, there are going to be some opportunities in this life that you're going to have to say no to because of your relationship with me. Denying yourself may mean a willingness to put God's plans ahead of your own. You young people that are in this room, you may have plans to be a teacher or a doctor. I want to know what you're going to do when God says, I want you to be a missionary or a youth minister. Are you going to put aside your ambitions for his? Galatians 2.20 says, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. Part of paying the price is that you no longer run the show. Like there's a new sheriff in town in your life, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the second key to following Jesus, again, this isn't like the East Point Christian Church. This is from Jesus, right? He says you have to shoulder your cross daily and follow me. I'm sure you know this, but Jesus wasn't the first guy to die on a cross. Jesus' death was unique because he was innocent. Because he was perfect, because he was the Son of God, but he wasn't the first guy to die on a cross. And so when Jesus' audience heard this phrase, shoulder your cross daily, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Crucifixions were the favorite method of torture and capital punishment uh, among the Romans. Roman prisoners that were bound for their crucifixion were forced to carry or shoulder their cross. They would carry the horizontal beam to their place of execution. They would use ropes or nails to connect the victim's feet and wrists to the wood. And so the, this, this image here was not just an image of self-denial. There's a lot more than that. It would have given Jesus' audience an immediate image of a violent death by execution. 
Let me read for you the verse. If you have your Bibles open, look at Luke 9.22. The verse before Luke 9.23. You'll notice before Jesus tells us how we're going to suffer, he tells us how he's going to suffer. Look at verse 22. He says, For I, the Son of Man, must suffer many terrible things, he said. I will be rejected by the leaders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. I will be killed, but three days later, I will be raised from the dead. One of the things I love about this Jesus stuff is that he never asks me to do anything that he didn't do himself. Notice that before he ever says, Rick Cooper, you've got to deny yourself, shoulder your cross, follow me. He starts talking about the terrible things he's going to suffer when he's rejected, when he's hung on a cross, literally. But the whole point of the whole story of this Jesus stuff is that there's a price to pay to follow Jesus. And I don't know what you think of when you think of carrying the cross, but I think of things like pain, suffering, I think of humiliation, I think of sacrifice, I think of perseverance, I think of injustice, I think of fatigue, I think of ridicule, and, and the reality is you're going to face all of that and more when you sign on the dotted line to follow Jesus. One of the greatest myths that I bought into when I was 15, 16, 17 years old was that Christianity was for whips. And I'll be honest, I didn't want any part of it. Like, I went to church, uh, but I never got serious about my faith because I thought it was just something for soft, wimpy people. And I really wasn't interested in that. Um, a couple years ago, I read a study by a guy by the name of Josh McDowell who does a lot of research between Christians and non-Christians and their lifestyles, and in particular, Christian teens and non-Christian students, teenagers. And I remember a study that he put out that said somewhere around 85% of church teenagers will walk away from their faith by the age of 18. Eight or nine of the kids you see strolling in this church on a weekly basis, by the age of 18, are going to say, I'm not willing to pay the price. And they're going to walk away. That scares me to death. If you're a parent in here and you're not shivering right now, Scares you to death. It says two things to me. Only one or two are going to be courageous enough to pay the price. One thing it says to me, it's an indictment on our youth ministries. Not here, but collectively, what we're doing in youth ministry in so many places isn't working. And number two, it sure doesn't sound like something for wimps if only one out or two or only 15 to 20 percent are going to survive it. You know what Jesus says in the Bible? Jesus says, more people are going to go to hell than they're going to go to heaven. He says in Matthew 7, 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. More people will spend their eternity in hell than in heaven. Again, that's, not, that's what Jesus says. One of the coolest opportunities I've had and not remaining as a sports broadcaster, I've gotten to meet a lot of Christian athletes. Like I've interviewed Michael Jordan, I've interviewed Tiger Woods, and those are cool to talk about, but my favorite moments as a broadcaster have been opportunities to meet Christian athletes who in the midst of fame and fortune and success are still running the race and following Jesus. So one of the things that I found as I interacted with these guys, these weren't a bunch of soft wimps. Like, these were tough spiritual guys that were fighting the fight and willing to pay the price. And I hope it's okay. I'm going to tell you about a couple of them that I met this morning. This guy here, his name is A.C. Green. He played 17 seasons in the NBA, nine of them for the Los 
Angeles Lakers. He's the answer to a trivia question. He's the only guy that won two championships with the Magic Johnson Lakers of the late 80s that was still around and a part of the uh, Shaq and Kobe-led Lakers in 2000 as well. He's the Iron Man of the NBA, having played in 1,192 consecutive games. Cal Ripken, great dude, love him, but he's playing baseball. This guy, 1,192 divided by 82. Dude played like 13 seasons without missing a game around the rim. It was absolutely incredible. He played in this era uh, when the Lakers were just unbelievable. Like the, the item, except if you were a Celtics fan, you loved the Lakers. Magic, Kareem, James Worthy, Michael Cooper. I mean, everybody loved these guys to the point when they would go on the road and after a game, they would go to their hotel room. The story is there would be hundreds of beautiful women waiting at their hotel room. And these women there were to study the Bible or have coffee. They had one desire, and it was to spend the night with an L.A. Laker. And you know Magic Johnson's story, November of 1991. He says, I've got the virus that causes AIDS because many of those nights, Magic Johnson, despite being married, said yes and, and, and said yes to these women. It would have been really easy for A.C. Green, talk about being easy, to do what everybody else was doing. Nobody would have ever known, but A.C. Green never did because A.C. Green was a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, I had a chance to interview A.C. Green in February of 2000 in the L.A. Laker locker room. I'm in the locker room, and Shaq's jersey is up. He's going to be in in just a couple moments. Kobe's jersey is hanging up right over here, and he's going to be in the locker room in just a few moments. I, it's A.C. Green and myself alone. I'm doing an interview with a 36-year-old virgin in the National Basketball Association. A.C. Green eventually married in April of 2002. His wife, Veronica, said that his virginity was the best wedding present she could ever imagine. He was willing to pay the price and remain sexually pure in the NBA. This guy, we don't usually see pictures of him this young, but that's John Wooden, um, who died, what, at 99 years old, about in 2010. We may not know about John Wooden. He was a three-time All-American, and he was the 1932 National Player of the Year. We know him as the coach at UCLA that took them to 10 national championships, seven in a row from 1967 to 73. How good was this guy? His career coaching record, 218 wins and 42 losses. That's pretty good. He had help from a couple of guys that were really good, guys by the name of Bill Walton and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. How did John Wooden uh, show his character? He expected things out of people. One of the things John Wooden had a rule at UCLA, you couldn't cuss on the floor when you played basketball for John Wooden. He's coaching the greatest college basketball teams that have ever been assembled, and they're not allowed to use profanity. I tried that with my middle school team. Didn't work very well, you know? Um, he had expectations about uh, if, if I pass the ball, oops, I pass the ball to you and you make a layup, you had to say thank you to me when you were coming down the floor. So the greatest athletes in college basketball, play after play, are yelling thank you as they run down the floor. We put that in play in our middle school program at Groveport Madison. He had a rule about facial hair. No facial hair. You're not going to have it. This Bill Walton is a three-time national player of the year. He wins two national championships. He's 86-4 and four as a player at UCLA, and he's got facial hair. And he looks at John Wooden and he says, Coach, I'm, I'm going to have facial hair 
at UCLA. And can you imagine hearing this? Imagine being a fly on the wall when John Wooden said this to Bill Walton. He said, Bill, he said, it's going to be weird not having you around here. And he walked away, is what John Wooden said. And the story is Bill Walton came back the next day with a clean shave, is what they said. So um, he always took time to mentor people, too. And I don't press for time, but i got to tell you this story. But a friend of mine who was the head coach at Kentucky Christian University, a little podunk, it's my alma mater, 500 people, and uh, he always admired John Wooden. And so he has a kid on his team who's getting ready to graduate. The kid knows how much Chad Leach, the head coach, loves John Wooden. And he sends John Wooden a letter in the mail saying, can my coach just come out here and meet with you in California? And he gets word back that, that it's okay. He gets the green light. So after graduation, the two of them round trip in the same day. They're going to fly up to California, 3,000 miles. They're going to go to John Wooden's house. They're going to spend time with him, and then they're going to fly home that night. When they get there, get to his house, it's gated. There's a phone outside the gate. They pick it up, and this is Chad Leach. We're here to meet with Coach Wooden. Slam! The phone goes down. They're standing there. What do we do? Like, we've flown 3,000 miles. We've got, like, he's not going to see us. And after about five or six minutes, here comes this 95-year-old man down a long driveway with a cane. And it's John Wooden. And he opens up his gate. He spends the next five or six hours sitting at his kitchen table with the head coach of Podunk Kentucky Christian University, talking about faith, talking about a character, talking basketball, talking his pyramid of success. And you think Tom Izzo or Coach Krzyzewski would do something like that? Not a chance, but he took time to mentor and disciple paid the price as well, even when it was hard. Frank Wright, in this next clip, you know the guy on the right. The guy on the right is Pete Manning. You probably have no idea who that guy is on the left. You'll see him this afternoon. He's the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. His name is Frank Wright, and he engineered the two greatest comebacks, the greatest comeback in college football, and then he engineered the greatest comeback in the National Football League as well. Can you imagine being in this situation? He's on the Maryland Terrapins, they're losing 31 to nothing to Miami of Florida. And the coach says, go get in the game, Frank. Thanks a lot, coach. And he leads him to a 42 to 40 come from behind win. He's playing for the Buffalo Bills in the NFL. It's a playoff game. They're playing against the Houston Oilers, who are now the Tennessee Titans. They're losing 35 to three in the third quarter. Same thing, the coach says, get in there, Frank. And he leads him to an improbable 41 to 38 playoff win. So in this press conference, as you can imagine, all they wanted to do was talk to Frank Reich after the game. Frank, tell us how you did it. Tell us how you got it all done. Tell us about you. And after those that come from behind win in the NFL, Frank Reich said this. He said, in Christ alone I place my trust and find my glory in the power of the cross. In every victory, let it be said of me that my source of strength and my source of hope is Christ alone. He stood strong in adverse times, and he was faithful when he experienced success. I'm a little reluctant to show this guy because I've never used this, I don't think, on a Sunday morning. I've used it at camps and stuff. This is Mark Price. My son, Price, is named for this guy. He's the greatest shooter of a basketball that the world has ever seen. Brooks, he was better than Steph Curry. All right, that's how good he was. He was an incredible shooter. And he was a committed Christian. He was in a singing group at the time called Lifeline. They weren't very good. He looks like a choir boy, and that's kind of 
what he was. And I'll never forget what, what I learned from Mark Price is you can be tough. Like there was, they were in an era when they were playing the Detroit Pistons, the bad boys with Isaiah Thomas and Dennis Rodman. And I remember watching a game where the camera goes up the floor and I'm watching it and there's only, there's only eight dudes in the camera, in the shot. And they go back to the other end, and Isaiah Thomas had taken a sucker punch at Mark Price, and Mark Price had Isaiah Thomas in a headlock at the other end, telling the security guys to come and, and get him out of the gym. I remember him being bullied. He's like 5'11". He's my size. And he was bullied by seven footers like Dikembe Mutombo. Remember John Concat bullying him one game. And shame on me for saying this. Don't do this. Man. But I remember Mark Price taking a basketball in that instance and firing it at John Comcat during that NBA game. I'm going to tell you as a guy that thought Christianity was for a bunch of whips, I needed to see it. Mark Price survived an emergency appendectomy in the NBA, survived an ECL tear, and was first team All-NBA. His dad, Denny, died in his arms in a pickup basketball game out in Oklahoma. He was tough and he was resilient. And that's why he was first team All-NBA. And that's why he's successful with Jesus as well. This next guy's name is Mike Singletary. I was 24 years old when I did a one-on-one -on -one interview with him at a Marriott Hotel in Charleston, West Virginia. I was scared to death. He was a linebacker for the 85 Bears that won a Super Bowl. As you can tell, he was known for these intense eyes. He was the middle linebacker, and before the play, he would just stare down the quarterback before he got ready to snap the ball. They were scared to death. And in Chicago, True story, in his, he was a Christian, so he served in his church, and he worked at a church up in, uh, called Willow Creek, huge church in Chicago. You know where he worked? Dude worked in the nursery. Can you imagine a baby, a year old, with those eyes? And he scared to death. He ended up being a coach in the NFL for the San Francisco 49ers for three years, and uh, I will never, ever forget what he did in his first season with the San Francisco 49ers. Late 2008, 34-13, blowout loss to the Seattle Seahawks. He throws his tight end, Vernon Davis, who's an all-pro tight end, off the field with 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter because Vernon Davis didn't show any kind of remorse for a bonehead 15-yard on sportsmanlike conduct penalty. Mike Singletary was a, a, a vicious dude. He said this so diplomatically. He said, I told him, that he would do a better job for us right now taking a shower and coming back and watching the game than going out onto the field. Simply as simple as that. And then in his post-game press conference, he said this, and you need to Google this today, Mike Singletary, Vernon Davis, because I'm not going to do it justice. But in his post-game press conference, Mike Singletary said this about Vernon Davis. He said, cannot play with him, cannot win with him, cannot coach with him, can't do it. You think it was easy to send an all-pro tight end to the showers with 10 minutes left in an NFL game? Well, Mike Singletary wasn't looking for easy, and that's why he's been successful with football, that's why he's been successful with Jesus. Probably way too much sports on a Sunday morning, but I will tell you it is stories like those that inspire me every day to keep fighting this fight. Christianity isn't for weak and wimpy people. Jesus was the toughest, most courageous dude that ever walked the face of this earth. And following him will be the most courageous thing you and I will ever do. I want to be real candid with you this morning. If you'll allow it, I believe that a lot of the problems our youth groups and our churches face 
stem from the fact that we don't talk enough about what's required to follow Jesus. I believe that. We talk more about forgiveness than we do repentance. We talk more about salvation than we do surrender. We talk more about happiness, happiness, than we do brokenness. We talk more about life than we do death. And there's two problems with this kind of talk. Number one, it isn't working. My friends, our churches are not healthier because of it. And number two, it's not biblical. Like, you can't open up the Bible and see this nonsense. Kyle Eidelman writes in, it's not a fan book. He says, it wasn't the size of the crowd that Jesus cared about. It was their level of commitment. Jesus didn't soften his message to make it more appealing. When all the fans turn to go home, Jesus doesn't send the disciples chasing after them with a creative handout, inviting them to come back for a build-your-own Sunday ice cream social. He seems okay with the fact that his popularity has plummeted. Jesus didn't sugarcoat his message to grow a bigger following. He didn't just tell people what they wanted to hear. He told people what they needed to hear. And there is a big, big difference between the two. There's a book I want to recommend to you if you're a parent or grandparent. It's, you can read it. If you're a student, you must read this book. It's a book called Do Hard Things. It was written a couple years ago, award-winning book by two twin teenage homeschool boys. Their names were Alex and Brett Harris. The foreword is by Chuck Norris. you got to read the book, right? You can't go wrong with Chuck Norris. But um, the 18-year-old boys that wrote this book make a point in the book. The main point of the book is this. Um, when they say that the teenagers are the way they are today, and that's how we talk about it, don't we? Kids these days. He says, teenagers are the way they are today because adults have lowered the bar. We've lowered the expectations, and all teens are doing is meeting our low expectations. And in the book, Alice and Brett Harris challenge teenagers, they challenge parents and grandparents too, to rebel against low expectations that are placed on them by this world, and to go out and do hard things for the glory of God. It's a great book. I was at a leadership meeting, not here, Several years ago, and I sat in a room where the topic of church membership came up. And one of the guys in that meeting suggested that our membership would increase if we did a better job of communicating the benefits that come along with church membership. It sounded like something I would hear at the meeting of executives at a country club. Like, uh, you've got to get the word out. We get preferred tea times, free range balls, discounts at the pro shop, and a free hot dog and soda at the turf. Being totally transparent with you. It made me absolutely nauseous. The problem in our churches isn't that students, adults, and seniors don't know the benefits that come with following Jesus. The problem is we don't understand sometimes the expectations that come with those commitments as well. Someone once told me as a kid, a religion that costs you nothing is worth nothing. I would argue that the most important word in that passage, um, it, the most important word in the entire Bible is in that passage, and shame on me as a preacher, we haven't even talked about it yet. It's that word on the last line in caps. It's that word daily. To me, that word best communicates the price that we are expected to pay to follow Jesus. I would argue there's no other word in the entire Bible that more clearly communicates what is expected of us as followers of Jesus more than the word daily. Wouldn't it be easy to come to easier to come to East Point Christian Church? Get our Jesus fix, punch our ticket to heaven, and, uh, and live the rest of our lives for ourselves. Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier to live like the world on Friday and Saturday nights and come in and just turn on Jesus on Sunday mornings? Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier 
to just accept a little bit of free grace, jump in the baptistry, and be done? Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if Jesus never used that word daily? See, what separates mediocre athletes from great athletes is that word daily. And I would argue that that word daily is also going to separate those that spend their eternity with Jesus from those that don't. Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith. It's full of all kinds of cool stories like men and women of God standing strong when it was hard. It's an inspirational chapter that talks about how God used men and women to shut the mouths of lions, quench the flames of fire, escape death by the edge of the sword, defeat entire armies, overthrow kingdoms. Talks about loved ones being brought back to life. It's, it's a feel-good chapter. Kind of sounds like one of those chapters, raise your hands and yell amen kind of chapter. Sounds like a good chapter to have when you're having a bad day. But unfortunately, there's a little bit more to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read for you Hebrews 11, 35 through 38 to give you the rest of the story. It says, but others trusted God and were tortured preferring to die rather than turn from God and be free. They placed their hope in the resurrection to a better life. Some were mocked and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in dungeons. Some died by stoning and some were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went about in skins of sheep and goats, hungry and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. They wandered over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Tortured, mocked, backs cut open with whips, chained in dungeons, died by stoning, sawed in half, killed with a sword, hungry, oppressed, mistreated. Hebrews 11 isn't the feel-good chapter that I thought it was. And neither is this Jesus stuff. There are definitely blessings that come your way when you sign on the dotted line with Jesus. I get it. The grace, the peace, the purpose, the hope that Jesus offers is something Scott kind of touched on earlier. It's, it's offered nowhere else in this world. I get that. But this morning, please allow me to shoot straight with you. The rest of the story is this. If you're doing this Jesus stuff right, if you're loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it's going to cost you dearly. There is a price to be paid to follow Jesus question you and I need to ask ourselves today and probably every day is real simple. Am I willing to pay the price? Maybe you've accepted Christ, but if I pulled you aside, you would say, Rick, I haven't paid a price and counted the cost for Jesus in a long, long time. I don't know what that means in your life. Maybe it means your commitment level is going to step up. Maybe it means you're going to take a stronger stand for Christ tomorrow in your job and in your school. Maybe today is the day you make a commitment to be a, 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 to pay the price financially by being a bigger partner in ministry with this church. Maybe it means that when times are tough in this church, that you're going to dig in and stay the course and work even harder. You're going to work as if everything depends on you, and you're going to pray as if everything depends on God. I don't know what facets of your life you're not giving to God, but you do, and God does. And so this morning, whether you do it publicly up here, or whether you do it privately in your seat before you walk out these doors, I want to encourage you to, to, to do that, to give your life back to Jesus. Some of you in this room have never accepted Jesus. You've been here, you come every week, 
and have never been baptized, you've never said, I want to sign on the dotted line, and today you're ready to not only be forgiven of your sins, because everybody wants a Savior, right? But not everybody wants a Lord. And today you're like, I want that too. I want Jesus to be the new leader of, your, of my life. Jesus paid the price for you. Are you willing to pay the price for him? Enter through the narrow gates, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross daily, 